This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Today, uh, we're, we have what's the last official colloquium of the term. Uh, the title is Men Imagining a Girl Revolution. Uh, and we're joined by Sharon Kinsella, who is visiting this term uh, in foreign languages and literature. She's been a very distinguished scholar, scholar of manga and anime, and I've read a lot of her stuff through the years and have really been interested in it. And today she's sharing some stuff from her new project, uh, Girls as Energy, Fantasies of Social Rejuvenation. So I'll turn it over to Sharon. Okay, thanks very much. I'm going to talk to you in a really old-fashioned English way, which is direct from the page. It's actually because I like talking so much that if I don't have the page in front of me, I could go on for several hours. It's the best way to rein it in. So, most of you have probably already seen Kill Bill and are quite familiar with uh, leakage of Japanese imagery, fashionable Japanese imagery, into US culture and European culture. Kill Bill was interesting to me because I'd already been looking at images of badly behaving, delinquent Japanese schoolgirls for quite a long time before that movie came out and the subject turned itself into uh, Hollywood entertainment. Kill Bill Volume 1 cast the new archetype um, of a ruthless Japanese schoolgirl onto the stage of global film culture in 2003 and it's stuck and and been reproduced again in other places um, in an animated sequence which illustrates the childhood of this half-American Chinese and half-Japanese Yakuza queen, Oren Ishii. Oren is depicted as an 11-year-old girl obliging an old Yakuza boss by sitting astride him in a school uniform. This is all the better to eviscerate boss Matsumoto, in revenge for the murder of her parents a few years earlier. So the adult Oren Ishii's bodyguard is Gogo Yubari, and she's a 17-year-old Japanese girl who's characterised most of all by an inclination towards savagery and a very pristine uh, school uniform. Gogo's thuggish persona is a little bit like that of Alex in Kubrick's Clockwork Orange, to my mind. Um, it's demonstrated in a date scene set in a um, art typically kawaii or cute candy-coloured bar and Gogo in this scene thrusts an old ornamental dagger into the stomach of a very goofy uh, young salaryman, a witless young man, after he asks her if she wants to do it uh, and she says in the affirmative something a little bit different. Um, what she says to him essentially is, um, instead of you doing it to me, it's me that is piercing you. And, of course, she's stabbing him in the stomach at this particular moment. So she says this while he's dying, and this scene delivers in a very nut-sized, compact, stylized form the story of a schoolgirl, a Japanese schoolgirl, or a young Asian woman that turned deviant. And this is a story, a narrative, that's been a recurrent motif in journalistic and cultural production in Japan from the mid-1990s, probably the most important cultural myth or narrative of this time. So she's powerful, but she's ultimately self-defeating. 
Um, Gogo captures quite a lot of the oafish personality, the vicious and oafish personality, which was attributed to schoolgirls apparently in rebellion in Japan at the turn of the millennium um, at the end of the 1990s. Um, the central theme of Kill Bill, on the other hand, is, of course, that of the abused bride seeking justice, also another female revenge narrative. Um, and this, this theme is heavily influenced, in fact, by cult films made in Japan in the early 1970s. I'm thinking here of Ito Shunya's female convict scorpion, uh, Joshu Sasori, uh, a series that ran from 1972, and another series, Fujita Toshia's Lady Snowblood, Shurayuki Hime, which is a, a, a pun or a parody on Snow White. Um, that ran from 1973. Uh, both of these films were very influential in the making of Kill Bill, and in, in actual fact, renting Kill Bill in Japan, you were forced to rent the original 1970s versions with the Kill Bill. They, they packaged them in a four-video series with sellotape around them to try to get you to understand the provenance of the Tarantino. Um, it also provides a very useful, simple measurement for me of the relatively longer duration of interest or obsession, if you like, in female vigilantes, female revenge movies, um, fighting for freedom or justice or, or whatever cause um, on Japanese screens and pages relative to that of the US and Europe, where it's a relatively new thing associated really with the 1990s and mostly with the late 90s onwards. This is just um, a synopsis of the film, uh, Shura Yukihime, Lady Snowblood. Um, celebratory and indulgent images of female oppression and revolt have taken an increasingly polar position in a range of media since this time in the 70s in Japan. And initially, this is in what's known as generally genre film, which encompasses a whole range of avant-garde and um, um, Roman porn and soft porn materials that are um, somewhat porn-based and somewhat um, improvised theatre-based. Um, she then takes up a sort of more permanent and long-lasting residence in Lolita Complex comics and later animation when, when Lolita Complex moves into animation and internet uh, media um, in the 80s and 90s. So it is possibly the fact that there's such a heavy stylization, there's such a heavy kitsch surrounding these animated and filmic characters which tends to have deflected any clear interpretation of the historical context, the historical and political meanings. Um, but these images obviously don't arise out of a void. Cultural studies theorist Saito Tamaki, currently very widely read, and um, it's a pity he's not available in English, um, he's a very interesting new theorist. He suggests that about 80% of the most popular animations made in Japan in, right through the 1980s and 1990s of all animations features a fighting female heroine, a, fema a fighting female soldier, he calls them. So the transfer of these very ubiquitous fantasy heroine characters into photojournalism and into the register of news in the mid-90s brings the theme of girl resistance into a realistic metre and it attracted a whole new range of critical speculation in the serious media, what's known as the serious media, Sahi Shimbun, Sahi newspaper, um, and uh, IRA, 
um, various weekly news magazines, current affairs magazines, about the apparently newly rebellious character of Japan's schoolgirls. And it was frequently framed in this national way as Japan's or our warewara schoolgirls or our daughters. So it's quite significant that the conjoined intellectual and cultural work about violent or sexual female resistance um, from the 70s onwards has been written and directed all but exclusively by older men. I don't have time today to deal with the whole gender divide of this cultural production, which is really quite complicated and interesting. Suffice that I want you to, to just let you know this as background information. Out of several thousand cultural, journalistic and academic items, MAs, um, um, research bodies, articles, films, um, art projects, produced about rebellious schoolgirls in Japan in the late 90s, um, only one was actually produced by a schoolgirl, and that was under heavy editorship and featured an awful lot of cute photographs of herself, the author, in the actual body of the book. It was a comic uh, called Goriko or Gorilla Babe, maybe something like Gorilla Babe, um, by um, Shimao Maho, um, who was 19 at the time. Apart from this, there was no production by the girls who were rebelling. Um, um, there was some involvement by older female critics and journalists, and I can name these on one hand, Ieda Shoko, Hayami Yukiko, Ueno Chizuko, um, and maybe one of the junior female journalists who were involved in this production. But they, they were writing largely in magazines that had a predominantly male readership and had a, a, a largely male perspective on the story anyway. Um, so regardless of the very distinctive presence in both the privileged and preppy end of shoujo culture or the more workerish and more gritty garu or gyaru um, girls' cultures in Japan since the 1900s, both of which have their own um, resonances, their own themes, their own styles, um, right through the 20th century into the present one. These visions of female rebellion have been a recurrent feature of specifically male spheres of imagination. Um, it's both necessary but also very contentious to raise this idea of there being a male cultural imaginary or a male sphere of cultural imagination um, it's, it's obviously tricky because, in fact, some of the people producing this are women and some of the people consuming this are women, and it's tricky to delineate precisely what is and isn't something that smells of a male angle. Uh, suffice to say that it's frequently referenced in that way by, in, in Japan by men and women, the, the male press or the, the male films as opposed to uh, the non-male uh, quarter. Uh, by when I say male imagination or male sphere of imagination, I do mean that um, I'm talking about the main organs of the media, which are fairly literally run by men. Um, but what I also mean is that um, there is a sort of specifically male flavour, tone, attitude, set of styles, set of narratives um, and that recur in these media. And that also this male perspective is the normative, dominant perspective on the whole, the one that is most likely to be taken in current affairs magazines or news reportage to which um, other journalists, um, female or feminist or otherwise, would have to negotiate or, or conform um, in most cases. Um, so this is my sort of very loose way of trying to explain what I might mean by male, male, male-based culture. And this is in the context, of course, of a society where gender dividing culture is really quite relevant and important and styles can be camped according to gender and gender history. 
So the struggles of these very agile and often acrobatic anti-heroines in male culture appear to have acted out overall a kind of prescient, if distorted, apprehension from afar of, of a future female revolt seeking revenge for real historical experiences of young women in modern Japan, or at least under Japanese imperial rule outside of um, island Japan today. Um, they seem to represent, to my mind, a premonition, even a prescription for young female revenge of past and present um, future experiences for incarceration, which is a repeated theme, a woman looking through a window attempting to escape, economic dependence or forced sexual servitude. All of these are major issues in the colonial Japan and within domestic Japan. Um, fantasies of female revolt against servitude and exploitation um, constitute a kind of experiential voyeurism that's shared both by the left and the right, or both by fearful and sympathetic male sensibilities. Um, so today I'm going to explore the nature of these images of feminine, if not always precisely feminist, resistance, and also try to work us towards um, the much more difficult question of how the projection of male subjectivity, male script writing or imagination or visual work or film work into narratives about young women may, of course, impact upon the development of either female-centred or ungendered political imagination. What space does this actually leave for young women themselves to um, represent themselves in, in this mode or a related mode? So during the decade wrapping around the millennium, there was an enormous amount of magazine writing in the shukanshi, in the weeklies, the weekly current affairs magazines, television news, documentaries, mockumentaries or yarase television, um, dramas, variety shows, non-fiction books, novels, on and on comics, um, academic theses, government, <coughs> sociological and cultural research, art house and BQ film, porn, um, animation, character merchandise, sweeties production, production of candy, advertising copy, um, contemporary photography and art at the more nouveau end. Um, all of this produced about the delinquent girl. So the extraordinary intensity of, of this mediation, um, of the image of this mediation, reminds me of Marshall McLuhan's work about the media, about almost a sense of the possibility of um, exploding energies, exploding visual imagery. Um, and I've, I've got a little quote from Marshall McLuhan here to um, just... Um, signpost what I mean by that. This is a quote from um, <clears throat> some of his obviously much earlier work. The crossings or hybridizations of the media release great new force and energy as if by fusion, uh, as if by fission or fusion. And this was especially so in the Tokyo transport zone where there's an incredible concatenation of visual imagery and mediation taking place around the train stations and around the department stores um, and on the, tr on the trains themselves. Um, the next slide I have is a very crude scientific uh, calculation of how much coverage there was on girls. And just to show you the increase, it's just taken from a database um, that's widely available, Nichibei Associates Database. And it's purely taking the four main words for girl in this period. There are many ways to say girl in Japanese. Um, it's taking four main ways of saying girl and calculating how many articles there are. This, of course, is taking place at the same time that the media per se is expanding. 
I'm not making any particular claims about it being uh, absolute. Suffice to say, there's a huge amount of material and it's increasing. And competition in the weekly current affairs magazines, the most widely um, sold or circulated magazines, is intense in the mid-90s. 1996 sees the end of, of a... 50-year period of continual expansion of revenue in the publishing industry. It's something that was predicted in the early 90s by editors and publishing companies and actually started in 96. So the rivalries between the leading high circulation, this is the oyajizashi, the men's press, the male press, um, is, is really intense. And these, these four lines represent the four best-selling men's mags. They're all selling around about six, seven million copies. And, and you can see that they actually increase uh, towards the end of the 90s when the publishing industry as a whole is facing its first plateau and decline. So this may be because of the number of articles on schoolgirls they were publishing in this time. It's impossible to say. just wanted you to know that this intense anxiety is taking place about profits in the publishing industry. A very large and important section of the media in Japan at the same time is this topic is also becoming important. So researchers and journalists and television camera crews wandered all around the central shopping districts of mostly Tokyo in search of schoolgirls to investigate and to photograph. And schoolgirls could um, pick and choose which editor or which sociologist they chose to bother talking to or, or not talking to. Um, anything up to four or five different camera crews could be found hanging around in Shibuya permanent, um, with permanent encampments on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, this became very routine. I went to Japan a couple of times in the late 90s to do sort of spot bits of research for three or four months ago and then I went back again for a year in 2003 and found that the whole system of interviewing schoolgirls had become so systematic that it, it works like clockwork and as soon as the girls came out of school the camera crews were already waiting and it was kind of already boring but it was still taking place so they were getting images for the news for the next night. Um, so journalistic fever for sightings of deviant schoolgirls was actually similar to the mod hunting, which for a very brief period in the 60s became, um, according to Stanley Cohen, and this is his words, a respectable, almost crowded sub-profession of journalism. And Cohen mentions, and this is quoting again, one journalist who recalled being sent in response to a cable from an American magazine to photograph mods in Piccadilly, which is London, at five o'clock on Sunday morning only to find, when he got there, a team from Paris Match and a full film unit already there on the spot, waiting for the mods to start fighting. So high, middle and occasionally even elementary school girls were said to be involved in a new form of casual prostitution known as compensated dating. Otherwise, ordinary school girls, were pictured using their mobile phones in public phone boxes to dial into telephone clubs or chat lines and get older male customers for paid dates. So this was the story. This was the, the sexual delinquency was their initial revolt. This is just one of these telephones, these telephone boxes on the TV news. Telephone boxes were often on the TV news at this time, um, as were computers. Six o'clock, so it's evening family, family news. Um, telop was adopted widely at exactly the same time as this issue hit the news, incidentally. Telopsa. I'm not sure if telopsa word is that, that's used in the US. It must be a specifically Japanese word. Telop is the um, device of 
transliterating every sound, and I mean sound, not word, so every sigh or grunt, as well as every word, transliterating it into various fonts. They could be expanding and vibrating or bouncing, but in this they're a bit more tame because it's the news, they're just sitting there. But So that there's a sort of double impact of the words. They're both said and they're flashed on the screen at the same time. This is telop. This was adopted almost universally for everything apart from wide shows and variety shows at this particular point, I think around about 1996, 95. Um, so although no statistical survey ever established um, the, the, the phenomenological status of this um, purported activity, this prostitution, and, and there, there were a few critical observers, um, such as a man called Maruta Koji, who started to do work conceptualising it as a pseudo-event, uh, very much in the vein of the um, attempts to construct social reality in the media. Um, the figure of the schoolgirl did, however, um, um, sail forward into media productions. Um, schoolgirl trading her body for cash became a kind of multiple metaphor, uh, an imploded metaphor with many, many attached meanings, a very, very simple um, signal, um, a whole range of sort of very middle-brow mass transmissions about uh, and so many subjects we can't even really um, 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 list them all here, really, um, um, became attached to her body, to this image. Um, it is, of course, quite closely related to debates about globalisation and the market and exchange and, and, and the boundary, the barrier to this. Um, so schoolgirl delinquency became linked to discussions about consumerism, globalisation, boundaries, um, the boundaries of nationhood, um, at what point do you stop selling? At what point do you remain Japan or remain pure? Um, it also became very related to debates about sexism and about um, um, uh, gender equality. This is the word that's used in Japanese, gender equality, which is a key issue of the 90s. And also it became really, in a very much, much more touchy and inexplicit and only hinted at way, it became related to regional relations in Asia of course, this is the same time period in which the other dominant news item um, is that of comfort women who were um, forced into sexual servitude without compensation and were also schoolgirls when this... Most of them were also schoolgirls when this happened to them in the Japanese colonies, and this is an issue forcing itself on Japan in the news because these women are coming forward through the courts demanding compensation and, and other things besides dignity. Um, so... Um, or it, the, the schoolgirl um, selling herself becomes related to all of these in a complicated way. The notion that schoolgirls were engaged in a form of resistance, hanko, um, to the status quo was also implicit, presumed in a great deal of this transmission. In fact, it was the, the, it was the um, unspoken presumption of most of the coverage that the girls were actually trying to revolt on some presumably largely unconscious level. So that some of the magazine titles in which this hanko is implied I have here, just to give you a taste, a flavour of it. Um, High School Girl Cultural Revolution, Extremist Kogyaru, is the shocking reality that they're being radicalised as they dance across the media stage. Compensated dating running wild, dating in dangerous waters, um, and various other things about lairs and covens, um, alluding to the idea that schoolgirls were kind of witches, um, 
Although none of these articles is very specifically or intentionally dealing with the metapolitics, the words suspicious, revolution, extremist, running wild, danger and violence repeat um, 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 frequently in this journalistic material. And most of this is called from the current affairs men's uh, weeklies and monthlies. Um, journalistic material as a whole gravitated towards these ideas and it gives the overall impression of a kind of teenage female political conspiracy of some um, strange sort. So in both social and legal debate about the and in the array of comics and films that followed in the wake of these initial journalistic um, front mining, if you like, schoolgirls were portrayed as resisting patriarchal society through a combination of deviance, sexual deviance, subcultural nonconformity, violence and most fancifully but actually rather widespread revolutionary direct action. Um, was the posture in which many of them were placed. Um, one, youth de- one youth deviancy specialist summarised the situation as one in which the boundary, I'm quoting here again, my translation, the boundary between misdeed and deed has broken down and a phase of borderlessness, mukyokai, has begun. Kurunuma Katsushi, who's a leading journalist for the men's weeklies, Shukan Bunshin, I think, uh, and an expert author on the topic who produced a book called Compensated Dating in 96, um, describes this essentially as a, quote, horrific performance, a susamaji seino. Critical libertarian and very, very media savvy, um, extremely famous and extremely infamous sociologist, Miyadai Shinji, um, described Compensated Dating as a perfectly legitimate, rational decision. Yeah. <coughs> For anti-Christian feminists and some leftists, casual prostitution was seen as a powerful re- rejection of both the repression and the management of young female sexuality. Feminist intellectual Ueno Chizuko supported Ira. Ira is the weekly magazine put out by Asahi, so a little left. Um, um, supported the Ira investigative journalist Hayami Yukiko, this is a woman, um, in her contention, and this is a quote, these girls grow up seeing the deception and the hypocrisy of their parents and they go on to exercise their right to sexual autonomy as an act of retaliation. Mirdai Shinji and Ueno Chizuko, rather strange bedfellows, joined forces with other well-known journalists and lawyers to put forward a platform for, quote, sexual self-determination, seino jiko keteken, of school children, which were otherwise funneled into the lonely space of what in Japan are rather more widely known as masturbatory media. It's a sort of category um, 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 for some of the comics and animations. So in the context of a modern society featuring a very large and a very well-established sex industry, uh, both in its legal and illegal period, and one in which many fathers did accept their legal right to sell their daughters into bondage in brothels and textile mills, uh, weaving workshops and various um, <coughs> working uh, sites um, well into the early decades of the 20th century, voluntary and casual prostitution instigated by women for their own profit, i.e. casual prostitution, has actually got a very long um, cultural history. It's very long been considered a form of self-serving, erotic, unnecessarily levitious female activity associated with wayward women, associated with writers, uh, associated with women uh, living independently outside of a family or marriage. 
Schoolgirls accused of compensated dating illustrated on one level the recurrence of this moral hostility towards this old problem of hidden pr prostitution, kakushibaita. Voluntary prostitution had rehearsed its symbolic meaning, in other words, and a very natural enemy in the form of a fairly touchy, uh, fairly patriarchal society. And schoolgirls were in fact portrayed as having utter contempt for whichever oyaji, which means old man or bloke, but also literally means daddy, um, whichever oyaji might try to rule their lives. Violent anti-male attitudes were apparently leading girls towards crimes of retribution. There was a very famous news item in August 1994 called the Telephone Club um, Hold-Up, Terukurugoto, which sparked a great deal of fascination with the potential for female violence against men. Um, it was widely indulged in the men's magazines and it was repeatedly um, discussed and written about over and over again in, in, the, in the men's magazines. Um, during this incident, two girls of an unknown age, they may have been grown women, we don't know, um, but dressed anyway in clinging outfits, took a 38-year-old male company employee to a love hotel and used a stun gun to assault him. Having bound his hands behind his back, they stuffed his mouth with sanitary wear and took some photographs of this pose, um, to remember it by, uh, before fleeing with his wallet. Over the next two years, compensated dating and man-mugging, oyaji gari, to, to mug an old bloke, became entwined themes in media reportage. Scenes of schoolgirls triumphantly wielding a range of weaponry to get their revenge against an abusive patriarchy of absent fathers, girl-sick nerds or otaku and sexist school teachers um, who discriminated against unsexy or um, um, uninterested girls in the class became a key narrative in literature and comics and film. So schoolgirl street fashion that responded quite closely to early media reportage described schoolgirls, um, describing schoolgirls as de facto prostitutes emerged also in the 90s. Its adherents became known from um, an external position as kogyaru and their style uh, comprised of two alternating outfits, which is a typical system for Japanese girls' fashion to have two, two very different outfits that it switches between. Customised school uniforms, one with skirts rolled up at the waist to turn them into miniskirts and loose socks hanging around the ankles. Uh, these were switched up with um, sort of what I um, call prostitute chic, chic style but isn't called that in Japanese. It's called lingerie linked style um, or adult style, otonake. And these were halter tops and very tight micro shorts and mini skirts and things. Um, this is just a how to do it. Um, I seem to have an extra thing on the screen here. Can It'll I move this? Away. It will go away. Yeah. So this is just how to get your uniform to look like that. Um, so a great deal of attention was paid to the intimidating sexual confidence of this girl's fashion. Journalists theorised that the platform boots and sandals that came in fashion in the late, about 98, 99, uh, were primarily a means to allow teenage girls to look down on men so that they could gaze at their bald patches. They were described as using secret codes of girls' slang amongst themselves, which was then called kogyargo, kogyara language. Um, in fact, there were three dictionaries published of kogyargo, all three of them were edited and written by older blokes in publishing companies. Um, in Dakapo, which is a magazine for pottering older blokes, um, resident professor 
Mr. Yonekawa, I, I don't know what kind of a professor is or what his other name is, argued that, and this is a quote, there is no need for anyone other than their friends to understand them and, and they don't want anyone else to understand them. Perhaps for them, adult masculine society lacks credibility in such a fundamental way that they reject all communication with it. Sociologist Miyadai Shinji suggested furthermore that for the majority of schoolgirls, that is, those that did not even dress in full-blown or even semi-kogyar fashion, simply appearing to be an ordinary schoolgirl, Futsunoko, contained within it a nucleus of irony that must not be overlooked. To quote him, the girls reject completely the adult world and that they will be forced to accept in the near future, and one is made to think that acting out the symbolic high school girl for adults is in itself a complete gesture of refusal. So film director Harada Masato first became interested in bad girls after reading about the telephone club hold-up in the male press in 1994, and he actually indicates this in his interviews where he first read the material. Harada went on to direct a film called Bounce Call Girls in 1997, which is beloved of all Japanese studies departments outside of Japan. Um, in this film, three high school girls collaborate with each other to earn money um, in one night, um, enough to send one of them, Lisa, to America, where she believes, and they all come to believe, that she will start an entirely new life, free from sexism and her parents and men. So demonstrations of very, very graceless and ugly white-collar male entitlement are caricatured and lampooned in this film. In one scene, a fat middle-aged man trots after Lisa in Shinjuku Station and pulls at her arm, sort of tugs at it, and demands that she meet him because he knows that she's doing it. So Lisa is eased into a whole series of very lucrative dates by a schoolgirl pimp or fixer called Jonko, <coughs> who in fact despises men and runs a compensated dating racket. And her plan is to extract as much money as possible from men by any means necessary, but not by sex. So on one assignment, Lisa and Jonko become additional players in a very expensive nightclub party assembled by an arrogant civil servant and his brother. The civil servant has just taken a cash bribe, um, and the girls and a Chinese hostess um, are taken by him to the men's bathroom um, to play a cleaning game with him. The civil servant strips down to his undershirt and begins to verbally abuse them. He, he tells them that they can't think and that he hates Asian women and core girls. And then he starts to wipe scum from the bottom of a plug hole of a urinal onto his neck <coughs> and to, in fact, embrace the plug fixture with his lips. And he demands that they follow his example and get some good moral... Um, experience and teaching in the process and crouch down to clean the toilets with their bare hands. <coughs> As the scene unfolds, it becomes a kind of idyllic or ideologically heavyweight uh, pan-Asian feminist um, situation of um, um, camaraderie across the language divides and it transpires that um, one of the schoolgirls uses a stun gun to put out the civil servant and the Chinese hostess gets to kick him around a lot while he's down on the floor before they run away with the money. Um, it transpires also that a Yakuza boss called Oshima who gets entangled with the girls and his best friend Saki, who owns a, a school uniform fetish shop, a Brusa and Mise, are old, schools, are old friends from university days when they were both involved in the student movement of 69-70. Oshima actually has his... Um, Yakuza bar decorated along the theme of the French Revolution. 
um, throughout the film a parallel is made between these representatives of anti-establishment politics of the 60s and the deviant schoolgirls. Um, in one scene, Jonko offers to pay off the fine of one of her girlfriends, which is owed to Oshima, in a compensated date in the form of a karaoke session in his bar. Thus, Oshima and Jonko wind up swaying arm in arm to the backdrop of tattered red flags as they sing the Internationale into twin microphones. You may not be surprised to know that this was rather a flop amongst teenage girls and not widely viewed. So Harada Masato, the director, suggested to me that, quote, in the 60s we did everything as a team, we went to demonstrations as a group and we were beaten, whereas Jonko has no political stance but she's bringing the old men down on her own as an individual. Koshibatetsu's comic for men, Compensated Dating Extermination Movement, Enjokosai Bokumetsu Undo, published in 1998, also envisions compensated dating as a kind of pubescent um, vigilante movement. In this case, compensated dating and man-mugging, oyajigari, are drawn as strategies in a vicious war of position between girls and men. While the young kogyara sometimes get captured and raped by predatory males, old men sometimes get captured and tortured by kogyara and their supportive young boyfriends who fight together against the entitlement of older men and their belief that it's as simple as flashing their credit cards or their money in order to buy young girls. Comic artist Koshiba Tetsuya says that he instinctively felt sympathetic to gyara culture when it appeared in the 1990s and he knew he was on their side. In the film version in 2001, violence erupts into love hotel rooms as the schoolgirls get their revenge on a twisted and misogynist transvestite character who's launched this extermination movement to rape schoolgirls without paying them compensation. Again, of course, another rather touchy metaphor there. Um, this may uh, remind you of the comfort women issue. <coughs> There is a straight-to-video B-movie. In fact, there are a large number of straight-to-video B-movies that are rent rentable um, in, in Japanese cities and towns, which unfortunately don't have available to show you clips from here. And this particular one is called Bum, with exclamation mark, which is highly appropriate. Um, it follows the idea of schoolgirl conspiracy to its very uh, zenith. Bum tells the story of a group of schoolgirls who form a secret society to reaffirm their mission statement, which is that girls are cool, which means is a deliberate way of saying girls are masculine as opposed to girls are feminine. Instead of girls are cute, girls are cool. Um, the film opens with a sequence of very nightmarish slapstick scenes in which the lead female, Kyoko, is grabbed at the ankles by an otaku character, a stereotype, which lays in wait for her in some, uh, some park steps. She's then chased through the subway system by a relay of male commuters who all get very excited when they recognise her. Kyoko accidentally comes into ownership of a handgun, which she finds herself obliged to loan to the friends that she's made in her secret circle. All of them use the gun to deal with their man problems. So one girl has been trapped into a series of love hotel dates with an older man through a false certificate of debt that she insists that he must repay. Another bespectacled girl uses the gun to get the full attention of her sexist male teacher, who she claims is prejudiced against her because she's plain and ugly and she won't flirt with him. So the girl's series of little victories against predatory men culminate in a plot to rid, 
rid the lead girl, Kyoko, of a stalker who's been trying to take photographs of her, photoshopping images of her head onto the bodies of nudes and then posting them on his girl-watching or stalker's blog on the internet, which, of course, is a kind of parody of the male media coverage on high school girls at this time. On this um, stalker's blog, this otaku or, or stalker claims that Kyoko, the schoolgirl, is involved in compensated dating and these photoshopped images are supposed to in some way prove this. So the girls bait the pervert with a mocked-up compensated date, which they deduce quite accurately. He will want to research. And um, using lookouts with cell phones to relay his exact movements, they stalk him with a handheld camera uh, and the girls finally advance on him on their bellies in the manner of a, a sort of gorilla cell in Vietnam in the jungle and they corner him at Yokohama Port. Um, Bum is very much pop culture or, or, or BQ, second-rate culture, in confessional mode and it critiques the role of men and the media in falsely documenting compensated dating and enthuses the possibility of armed schoolgirls challenging this media deception. So in a very deliberate twist on this theme of armed girls, a machine gun with a flower in the barrel appeared on, in the arms of an anime-style cartoon schoolgirl on the cover of new reality Shingetsu Journal in spring 2003. Uh, the flower in the gun um, represents uh, the issue statement, which is opposition to the war in Iraq, no war. Um, but it also seems to suggest a parallel detente in the domestic gender war. Uh, it may also uh, link schoolgirls visually to the anti-Vietnam movement of the, of the 1960s. New Reality is a new journal, um, actually surprisingly well-funded, which drew from a distinctive combination of cultural and political theory produced by the younger generation of male intellectuals linked to otaku culture, what I tend to call the otaku interi, the otaku intelligentsia, um, and they're, they're responsible um, for, for producing this magazine. So in other major films like Battle Royale, all about Lily Choo Choo, 2002. Schoolgirls, and sometimes their school boyfriends as well, are depicted as the victims and the perpetrators of a much more demotic and a much more um, mute vein of delinquent violence, in many cases self-destruction, self-violence, or even um, suicide or mass suicide. Of course, when looking at these kind of films featuring mass suicide, we have to remember that suicide is a political uh, weapon and military strategy in Japanese history. We only need to think about the kamikaze pilot, uh, fighter pilots of Second World War to realise that it doesn't need to be read as a sign of personal despair. It can be read as a strategy as well. Um, I'm not going to go into those because nearly all of those are available in English. Jusatsu Circle, Suicide Club and, and Battle Royale. Um, Despite the very startled posture routinely and uh, repetitively adopted to deliver news commentary about the emergence of this novel and incomprehensible generation of belligerent and frightening schoolgirls, the story of casual prostitution and violent female rebellion has recurred through modern culture and has these very deep historical resonances. The particular history of forced, voluntary and indentured prostitution amongst women of rural and labouring classes the move, and the movement for the abolition of prostitution in Japan uh, between uh, 1870 and 1956 um, has nurtured a pool of imagination in which female liberation, emancipation and feminism has been seen at its most fundamental 
not as a reaction to the boredom or the unfairness of nursing old folks, people's parents, or, or nursing and raising children, or doing mountains of um, repetitive housework, but in fact has been seen as most fundamental as a reaction to the possibility of prostitution and incarceration. Um, Fantasies of armed, surreal and magical female resistance have been quite closely configured with the ambience and all the visual trappings of the world of sexual service and sexual bondage. So for pre-war social reformers and Marxists, feminine experiences of prostitution and poverty became the emblems, the core issues, um, which represented the physical suffering forced upon the lower classes in general by the process of modernisation. By the 1920s, female labour and sexual services in the extensive brothel industry, which in fact grew in the modern period, it didn't, it's often described as having these incredibly archaic roots, uh, which it does, but it, it grows very rapidly in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Um, it was um, seen as a sign um, of, 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 this ex- of the existence of this system. Um, the, the, the brothel system is seen as a sign of the failure of, of modern life in general. Um, pre-war urban social scientist Gondo Yasnoske uh, drew, um, uh, was drawn repeatedly to observing the lives of prostitutes and cafe waitresses and he made all kinds of very extensive tabular um, statistical surveys of their lifestyles and what they wore and their habits. Marxist critic Tosaka Jun um, took the sale of women into prostitution as his most central example of a critical social problem masked as tradition or custom. Again, for him, it was a presumption that this was the key issue, the key social problem of its time. Memories and mythologies that correlate to this earlier political prioritisation of prostitution as a symbol of subaltern existence and subaltern experience, as well as potential politically, continue right through the post-war period. Imamura Shohei, the filmmaker, has returned continually to keep excavating this film. <coughs> and he's also made documentary pieces which relate to this. <coughs> he made a documentary in 1970 called Karayuki, which follows uh, this historical underclass of female drudges on their journeys around Asia to, to brothels outside of Japan and um, tries to record where these old ladies wound up living by 1970 who were still living in the ex-colonies and what kind of lives they lived now that they'd turned into um, Singaporean or Taiwanese residents. Um, <clears throat> in the history of Japan, according to Madame Omboro, um, which is one of his most famous and unviewable, unreleased films, 1970, Imamura chooses a woman in the disreputable profession of a bar mamasan as the narrator She's the person who's qualified to tell the unofficial account, the people's history of Japan, and he positions her in this role. In the 1970s, young women were placed in films pursuing the story of female revenge within the stylistic framework of period dramas, jidaigeki or samurai flicks, and we get the whole new explosion of what is now retrospectively called Japanese exploitation movies in this period. Female convict Scorpion, which spanned 72 to 77, features women imprisoned for crimes provoked by their mistreatment at the hands of men in the, in the family, um, mostly within the family. These very unapologetic and brutal women humiliate and mutilate and kill the prison warders and sexist salarymen they encounter on their lunges for freedom. 
<coughs> one creative interlude in the second film in this series, Jailhouse 701, captures the tone, um, for me, in scenes in which women are in forced labour camps and then scenes in which they start running three, uh, through <coughs> the new streets of Japan, the rebuilt streets after the Olympic period. Here they are in a labour camp at the beginning of the film. It's <coughs> really a very, very heavily sent up. They're, they're forced to dig holes and then to fill them up again. And there's all these blokes guarding them. But then by the end of the film, they manage to run free and they run out into the financial districts, which are new, still mint and brand new at this time. Um, <coughs> in each volume of Lady Snowblood, 73 and 74, the leading female, Snowblood, outwits and slays her male enemies using her extraordinary intuition, training and sword skills. Um, this, you can't really see her in the sword, but she's there behind the <coughs> English translation that I wanted you to see. Um, in the first of these films, Snowblood seeks and kills the men who raped and imprisoned her mother 20 years earlier when she comes of age. In the second film, she defects from the secret police to join forces with an anarchist intellectual, eventually slaughtering the chiefs of the major secret police to avenge the torture and death of suspected members of an anti-state cell. This is probably very loosely based on the true story of the anarchist Kotokushise, who was tortured by the police and executed in 1911. Iconoclastic countercultural material created in the 70s paired innocent and demure schoolgirls with casual and voluntary prostitution. Portraits of schoolgirls as very blithely carefree whores in literature, film, and theatre ridicule the ideas of bourgeois social enlightenment through, for example, universal education and chastity that are symbolised by the schoolgirls' uniform. One scene in Terayama Shuji, who's a very major cultural figure in, in 19 really in Japan from the 60s onwards, um, someone a little bit like, um, I don't know, someone as big as Warhol perhaps. Um, in one scene in one of Terayama Shuji's cult films, um, Throw Out Your Books, Let's Get Into the Streets, which is 1971, um, he shows schoolgirls in uniform sitting on a fence in a very idyllic, rather European or European-esque pastoral scene. And they're very lustily singing a nonsense song with the lyrics, uh, when I grow up and become a prostitute, I'm going to buy me some soap to wash the Johns I, to wash the Johns I like the best. And you've got a little, um, a little bit of that there. <coughs> so the happy girls sway from side to side and gradually remove their sailor uniforms until they're topless. I have to remind you that this is not pornography um, and, and that I'm only using a very small amount of um, pornography in my examples today. I, I want to mention this because people often think this is, I'm getting all of this material from soft porn, I'm, I'm not. Um, in 1970, another film, earlier, called Sada, or Third, also by Terry Amma, two schoolgirls who want to sell themselves to earn pocket money and um, <clears throat> basically deal with their boredom in the countryside, request the help of two lads in their school, and the four of them travel to Shibuya in Tokyo, where the boys find the customers to pimp the girls. So the lads sit at the passes, um, go to Shibuya, and they sit at the uh, pedest giant pedestrian crossing at Shibuya and ask the passers-by, excuse me, sir, aren't you getting a bit bored with your wife? Wouldn't you like to have a high school girl for 20,000 yen? And so the film goes on, and it's in a very deadpan and camp manner. 
Um, the humour of the sweet schoolgirl gone strangely sexual and awry is based, of course, on introduce, introducing taboo and inappropriate traces of the buried history of prostitution into idealised and desexualized images of normal and implicitly middle-class or middle-mass-class society, post-war society. Through the 20th century, both girls' culture and the images of girls has been divided between the overtly erotic and the overtly asexual, conjoining the personalities and the fates of good schoolgirls and bad working girls has been an explosive um, admixture and an explosive device in modern culture and social imagination, which also takes place in this um, male-dominated material. So the privileged socio-economic status of schoolgirls, which emerges with the first girls' schools schools in the major period, was codified very, very rigidly by their quite idealised attributes of virginity and cleanliness. And it's quite probable that this had um, this very early conception of girlish asexuality and pride in virginity. Uh, Shojo was actually... Before it meant girl, it meant virgin. There's two words for shojo. The early shojo was a virgin, and pe- girls actually formed virgin societies, and it was a way of describing their own autonomy from society. It was a point of pride and a, and a point of their uh, resistance in many cases. Um, but this very early sh- girlish conception of asexuality or virginity, which has been wayward at times and which has veered towards androgyny, same-sex romance, and later towards cuteness, Um, was partly constructed against the highly sexualised nature of its much-feared opposite. And this, of course, is the experience of girls from rural and lower classes entering into factories and workshops, domestic service and sometimes brothels. Sexualised schoolgirls are not only absurd and iconoclastic images, but they also imply a challenge to the accepted class order. In the countercultural current that accompanied and preceded the student movements in the 60s and the 70s, schoolgirls and college girls were also sometimes presented by male illustrators, comic artists and filmmakers as the euphoric emblems of carnal um, aspects of political rebellion. And Adachi Maso is somebody who expresses this figure very well and has made several films along this vein. Adachi Maso, I have to tell you, has just got back from Lebanon, uh, arrived back in Japan. He was a member of the Red Army and went to Lebanon in 1974. So he's literally, according to your perspective, a freedom fighter or a terrorist, but he was a filmmaker of soft-born slash revolutionary movies before he went to Lebanon. Um, And he's just come back to Japan and is now being fated as a cult filmmaker, um, and his history is coming back. Um, (coughs) This is just one still from... Uh, Adachi Masao's film Schoolgirl Gorillas, which is a 1969 film. In this film, five excited schoolchildren, three girls and two boys, discover and burn the graduation certificates for their entire school grade before they're handed out. And then they seduce Japanese self-defence force soldiers in order to steal their weapons, their hand grenades, uh, which they need because they're going to set up a military commune in the mountains. So they're fully equipped with grenades and rifles and some farm animals and they're set off into the countryside and they barricade themselves in a mountain holdout. The, in the renegade, uh, the renegade schoolchildren muse as they lie in their free love compound 
their free love um, holdout about the advances made by the college students in the campus occupations, and they determined to defend their own commune in the mountains on the, on the principle of free love. And this is the point at which the revolutionary film becomes a soft porn movie. Um, naked schoolgirls defend their encampment with rifles and succeed in heading off a party of rescuers. They take pot shots at the headmaster and the head girl and boy, the valedictorian of their school. Schoolgirl Gorillas was released for sale in DVD format for the first time in 2002 after Adachi's return to Japan. It instantly became a cult item, almost entirely unrentable in any video store because it was booked up for months in advance. So the theme of the armed and militant girl continued without much interruption in comic and animation media as they were expanding in the later 70s and particularly in the 80s. One example showing you how the theme continues through the media forms is a series, um, a story called St Michael's Campus Adrift. Um, Adrift has sexual connotations. It's originally written uh, by a fairly well-known playwright, Takatori A, in 86, and it becomes a film in 1990 it becomes a comic in 94 and it becomes an adult animation with a a powerful cult otaku based following in 2000 a campus adrift um, features a girls high school which is officially run by a very austere and cruel order of catholic nuns but which is run covertly by a sadistic military general and his army the campus becomes the site of schoolgirl revolution against the military and the nuns after intolerable punishments involving rope bondage and incarceration lead to the suicide of one of the girls. The figure of the little girl equipped with special powers and weapons and prepared to fight bravely against more and more abstract and fantastical powers uh, also appears in children's comics, and this is much earlier. A classic and famous one is Tezuka's Night in Ribbons, 1967. A very famous one also is Cutie Honey, 1973. She later and very gradually becomes a pivotal figure in girls' comics also and in children's animations. But most predominantly, she becomes the key figure of Lolita complex comics and animations made almost entirely by and for uh, male fans. Girls' comics and female artists... Um, have produced this um, figure in a somewhat different form, usually with more clothes on and, and stylized in a very different way. And examples of this are Urusei Atsura, 1978, Sailor Moon, of course, 1992, and Revolutionary Girl Utena, 1997. Um, it's far too complicated for me to uh, begin to even talk about the relationship between girls' comics and male um, Lolita complex material here. Um, nevertheless, this character is far more dominant in, in men's Lolita complex and male culture. So the split history of the schoolgirls' emancipation and the covert exploitation and entrapment of working girls in their teens and 20s <coughs> is, to my mind, repeated in the mythological battle, which constitutes the essential narrative of Lolita complex material. In this battle... Pure and rather intelligent lolitas or girls, be they maids, uh, Shinto shrine servants, servants, daughters, uh, or schoolgirls, or a combination of all of these in caricature and and character form, use mystic female or alien powers to battle for their survival. And more specifically, um, they fight to avoid becoming prisoners in violent and sexualised underworlds where they may be turned into sex slaves. 
These narratives seem to involve a male-driven, animated, stylized regurgitation of elsewhere abandoned and derelicted aspects of modern female experience. And this is particularly clear in serialized hardcore pornographic animations like Legend of the Overfiend, Urotsuki Doji, released in 87, and La Blue Girl, released in 92, and Twin Angels, released in 96. And I have a little clip here from Overfiend, which I'm really glad to say is incredibly low quality. And um, I'm going to screen a bit of it. It's not particularly pornographic, but it's... It's the opening scene of, a, of an underworld orgy. I'd, I'm more interested in the, um, what the narrator says than what's visually on the screen. And um, I'm going to try and show you that now. Mm. Is it the other one? I haven't lost it yet. It is the other one, yeah. yeah you... Oh, is it underneath? Okay, great, thank you. So. If you just hit the play at the bottom there. Okay, and I can't make it fill the screen. Uh, I don't. Okay, I'll just hit play. Uh, not that one. Nope. Okay. This one. Sorry, how stupid. Okay. I was just showing you that clip to attempt to argue my case that there may be some his- history lurking around the back of these hardcore animations and that in some senses this seems to be almost directly suggested in the narration itself of, of, of the movies. Um, and of course there's also the context of what's going on in the news at the same time in Japan, uh, which um, happens to take place at the same time that these this particular... Um, um, how can we say, group of hardcore movies um, um, was produced in the mid-90s. So fantasy references to a history of sexual slavery occur not only in this highly stylized Lolita complex animation 
and, and hardcore porn, but also in animation and film produced for multitudinous global audiences, though it's not always spotted by its audiences in Japan or outside of Japan. Miyazaki Hayao's Princess Mononoke, released in 1999, um, features very jolly, liberated middle-aged women in a place called Irontown, and they confess uh, to Mononoke that they've been rescued from their previous lives in brothels by the owner of the iron foundry, Lady Iboshi, so they have a new female boss. The main location of Miyazaki... The main location of Miyazaki um, Hayao's award-winning film, A Spirited Away, released in 2001, is an enormous bathhouse perched on a rocky precipice which also serves as a prison preventing escape. The little girl and the lead character, Chihiro, signs an oppressive contract to work under a new name for this rather brothel-esque establishment. Self-incarceration and hard labour is an ordeal Chihiro bravely undergoes in order to liberate her parents from a curse that has left them as pigs. This is nevertheless reminiscent of young women working in factories or brothels to liberate their parents from an advance loan that's been paid down um, to liberate them from um, the fate of poverty. Chihiro's bondage to the bathhouse in order to save her ungrateful parents of course echoes the pre-war history of daughters sold into bondage to save their families. Um, and the, the, the also um, it's relevant to know that bathhouse is a euphemism for a brothel and it's actually um, the official accepted police terminology for a brothel in contemporary Japan is soapland or bathhouse and bathhouse sign is hanging outside of this um, rather um, Edo-style building um, in, in the animation. Um, in this um, story, the bathhouse is a gated wooden building um, evoking, um, of course, a, an, an enclosed quarter um, and it's crammed with these jubilant guests, these fat guests who are ordering all kinds of um, um, drink and, and fancies and expecting various forms of rather intimate bathing services from the serving girls. I think also the, some of the work and dormitory scenes in Spirited Away are quite clearly drawn from an imagination or a reading of, into history of all-female dorms uh, where women were generally locked in at factories and weaving shops and brothels. Uh, the dorm culture surrounding these workplaces is um, quite well known and documented. So rather than being a perplexing and a new and a postmodern phenomenon, journalistic and creative descriptions of aggressive and sexually assertive schoolgirls which dominated the media in the late 90s were already preceded by this quite powerful political romance with insubordinate and sometimes slatternly young women. The, the post-war turning point in 1970 um, <coughs> saw combative and erotic schoolgirl characters uh, re rehearsed repeatedly in much more specialist and sometimes underground or avant-garde or otaku subculture. Um, although initially debuting in the mass media in the 1990s as a debate about a social problem called compensated dating, the hyperbolic and constructed or yarase nature of television news programming and weekly magazine shukanshi articles meant that the new ethnography or the new pseudo-ethnography of schoolgirls was never really clearly distinguished from parallel and previous fictions and not many people demanded that distinction was made. 
Perhaps the most complicated issue attached to this whole seductive cultural tradition, however, of, of female insubordination is this fact that it's created and appreciated largely by men, typically both several decades older and also typically several degrees more highly cultivated male intellectuals, writers and editors also discuss with great interest the new wave of resistance reported to be erupting amongst teenage girls in the 90s. The absence of any manifestos or reports on this subject by young women meant, of course, that these interlocutors into the debate about resistance had to divine the position of schoolgirls for themselves. And Murakami Ryu, a key opinion maker, wrote two part, a two-part novel and a film script, Love and Pop, 1998, about schoolgirls at the end of the 90s. In one of his many articles, or Zadankai, uh, group debates with other intellectuals published debates, um, uh, Murakami um, summarises his idea of the critical consciousness of schoolgirls and this is a quote they are not that lost and neither are they just innocents who know nothing at all about the world the sharp ones see straight through the lie that is Japan today but then Murakami goes on later in the same article about contemporary teenage girls um, with limited experience to uh, suggest that they nevertheless couldn't be expected to speak for themselves and he says at 16 or 17 years old, they can't say it in words, quote, except to say something like, it runs deep, okugafukai. So contributors to the discussion about schoolgirl deviancy considered themselves supporters from the sidelines. Film director Harada explained that, quote, the old men are the establishment and I'm against them, so of course I'm on the side of young girls. All my films are from the standpoint of an individual opposed to the political establishment. And the kogyar fit that stance perfectly. So rather echoing Harada's own thoughts about the Kogyara stance fitting to his own so perfectly, psychoanalyst Kawai Hayao, a very important intellectual figure in contemporary Japan and the main um, resident intellectual at the Japan Research Centre in Kyoto, bared his own feelings in a very similar manner, and this is a quote, Reflecting on the 1960s student movement that did not get the results it searched for, I feel as if I want to somehow contribute and help the girls' movement along. And, and uh, Kawaii Hayao coins the phrase girls' movement um, under. He uses the same word as one would use to describe the 60s. So one of the problems with joining forces with the girls' movement, however, was the apparent disinclination amongst girls themselves to identify themselves as kogyaru or to stand up for deviant gyaru values. One journalist, a younger woman actually, complained to me, quote, if you ask likely girls if they're kogyaru and try to get them to work with you, they'll say they aren't kogyaru, but I wish they would say they were. I wish they would defend themselves against the criticism and be more defiant. Kawaii Hayao describes schoolgirls involved in compensated dating as a kind of, quote, unconscious movement, end quote. Girls were engaged in this movement involuntarily, quote, they have absolutely no interest in opposition or revenge. They might even welcome the older men that do compensated dating with them as people who can help them out. But their actions breed a violence which has the potential to become a destructive power, except that the girls themselves are completely unaware of this. So this notion of girls as an unconscious vanguard, a kind of zombie or comatose vanguard, is not actually entirely new and has some earlier writing in this zone, in this vein as well. All signs and sightings of the schoolgirl movement were made by the directors, writers, editors and designers engaged by the cultural intellectual industries. 
producing articles and shows and films and books and photographs through which it was evidenced. Likewise, the substrate of what became recognised as Kolgiara culture was almost entirely created by specialists in the publishing, retail and entertainment corporations. The project of deviant agency and revolutionary ambition, the projection of deviant agency and revolutionary ambition onto schoolgirls in published debates and fiction was in many ways a contemporary reworking of this long-standing attachment of male intellectuals and writers to the political authenticity of the female class and their experience and their eroticised labour. So a schoolgirl movement and even a Kogal culture may have passed through Japan quite recently, but its agents, deviant or otherwise, were not teenage women. They were actually middle-aged, liberal-minded cultural professionals. We can think of this as a form of vicarious deviancy, the fascination with armed and avenging female vigilantes and with deviant schoolgirl culture in the 90s appears to be a local gendered variant of the mode of cultural populism that's been characteristic of many post-war societies. The desire to see, to witness a resistant working-class youth culture in post-war England meant that sociologists and criminologists often took a vicarious pleasure in discussing the criminal behaviour of their subjects, and Stanley Cohen, in his early cultural studies work, comments on this. He actually uh, mentions one case in which, quote, instead of being denounced, they were welcomed for ideological reasons. So, for example, some of the provos and destruction in art movement actually hailed the mods and rockers as the avant-garde of an anarchist revolution, Left-wing intellectuals and culture industries have courted black working class and, in the Japanese context, girl-centred youth cultures. Post-war youth cultural populism has also some of its roots in the pre-war investment in folk, working class or Negro cultures and subjectivity, as they were um, conceived at the time, and can be considered um, eventually as the domestic corollary of the romance between first-world intellectuals and artists and oppressed people in the third or the developing world. Gayatri Spivak critiques the dynamic underlying the otherwise sympathetic political imagination of lower-class and third-world resistance movements. Um, And her critique, to my mind, can be quite effectively applied to the case of resistance schoolgirls in Tokyo. Spivak argues that, quote, leftist intellectuals' lists of self-knowing, politically canny subalterns stands revealed, representing them, the intellectuals represent themselves as transparent. In contemporary Tokyo, the romantic fixation with the ultimate political possibilities of a schoolgirl subculture was in fact a rather narcissistic and frustrated affair, one in which cultural and intellectual producers paraded their own educated subjectivity as those of the schoolgirls and Gyara culture. I just talk a little bit longer. He may be precisely the social inexperience and the lack of an independent voice by which contemporary teenage girls are characterised that has made them such an attractive subject for the attention of writers and producers. The muteness of school-aged girls and the absence of young women in their 20s, um, even in their 30s, from positions of influence, must surely have facilitated the uninterrupted, transparent and successful projection of a narrative into their image. In his psychoanalytic deconstruction of the male adoration of fighting girl heroines in contemporary animation, cultural theorist Saito Tamaki deduces that armed girl characters, quote, transmit desire and energy to the extent that they are vacant, end quote, 
And Saito goes on to suggest that it would be appropriate to think of these distinctively kukyo, empty characters, as, quote, phallic girls. According to Saito's analysis of these animated fantasies, which, of course, are concurrent with journalistic descriptions of deviant and violent fighting schoolgirls, these fighting animation characters represent nothing but disembodied, disengaged expressions of an impotent male subjectivity. By assuming the identity of schoolgirls, effectively or literally, and by speaking on their behalf, intellectual and cultural professionals have not only been assisted by the incapacity of schoolgirls to articulate or to respond at approximate intellectual or cultural level, but ironically they have perhaps also blocked the route of young female political imagination, what literally is left to imagine of one's own positionality. The dense and competitive advanced colonisation of every last facet of the voice, opinion, attitude, sexuality and image of girls in the media and through academia bears out the also melancholy and deeply critical complaint by Gayatri Spivak, um, which she makes against first world intellectuals, uh, albeit a decade or so earlier, that, quote, the possibility of the collectivity itself is persistently foreclosed through the manipulation of female agency. I, th I think I'll leave you at that point there. Time for some questions. I'll carry the mic around and play Oprah so that we get, since we're webcasting this thing, I want to make sure I get you on mic. So, who wants to get us started? Um, you mentioned at some point that there were many ways to say girl in Japanese, and I'm just curious. I assume you meant many more than in English or other Western languages, some Western languages. Can you say something more about that? Um, some of them were up there on the board temporarily. Yeah. So there's shojo, which is a but, well, the distinction mm -hmm. among them. Um, for those well, they, they all have very. They they all have a lot of implicit meaning, which is, a, and it really depends on which bod, which group of people are using the word. Uh, a lot of the words are not going to be used by women themselves. So it depends on who's using the word about them. It's, I, I mean. It's an extremely contentious issue, but I think it's very much like the N-word in America. You know, that it's different yes. people have privilege to use the word in different ways, and that depends on the political period, what's been gained and what's been lost. Um, generally, men can use the word shoujo to describe a cute and pure and sexually innocent girl, which is nearly always an ideal, an iconic figure in culture, but could be a real young girl. Girls are highly unlikely to use this word about themselves or to each other. And so are their mothers highly unlikely to describe their own daughters as shoujo. Girls do sometimes use their own words, but they tend to get colonised. So at one point, young university students started using the word ononoko, which is a bit rather, rather scientific and biological. It just literally means girl in, in the most sort of medical sense of the word. And this kind of then became associated with some sort of sexual scandals of high... Of, university students, so they sort of abandoned that word. And then um, Giara was a word that was used briefly by girls, but was l much more used um, by the media in the 1990s. Girls started to use um, <coughs> Garu, another word, which is more girlish and frilly, um, in the 2000s. And again, I think that's been pretty much colonised again now. 
So there's a kind of cycling of these words too. Garu is a throwback from words used in the 30s, so, so it's sort of reclaimed again. <coughs> so, yeah, there is a kind of political economy of these words, and it, it, it's deeply relevant which one you choose to use. Mm. Thank you. So I wonder, I, I was struck by the degree to which some of the films that are known in the West, like mm. Sailor Moon mm. or Spirited Away, mm. we don't encounter with, with any of these connotations. I'm assuming mm. in part because we don't have the larger cultural discourse, but mm. I'm wondering to what degree it's also the localization practices of stripping, you know, of what people call deodorization, mm. stripping aside of certain cultural markers that might contribute mm. to that, that's sort of the degree to which we're seeing these things really radically removed from the context you've just described. Well, actually, those cues are all there in the English language versions. It's just that they, I don't think they'll be picked up on or seen in quite the same way. They're there in spirited away. It says quite clearly we used to be prostitutes. <laughs> but, but somehow in, in, in the flow of this beautiful yeah, when animation it's released it by Disney, stick out you don't quite English. hear it when they say you that. don't quite hear yeah. it no. you, it's sort of a double take and, and again I think with the visual scenery it's so beautiful and detailed and fantastical that it's, you somehow don't see in all that that this little girl is working her butt off in something that looks like a, a bathing house for old slobs you, you just kind of it, 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 I don't know, there's, there's various reasons, I think, why it's not noticed in a very clear way. I, I don't think it's particularly noticed in Japan either, though. Yeah, there you go. Oprah, I'll fact. Is there a, a re-articulation or a reappropriation of Western images of girls through these kind of discourses? Can you say that again in a different way? <laughs> so uh, all of the examples that, that, that you screened were uh, Japanese-produced quite, quite sensibly. Mm. Um, but how are, are Western images of, of, of women or, or discourses about women re-articulated through this kind of framework, if at all? Western images of women within Japan? Yeah. So in, in something that's imported into Japan... Mm. I mean, I realise that it's because it's produced from a different cultural perspective, mm. obviously, that doesn't full subject or, or conform to this kind of complexity. So I'm just wondering whether it's, uh, these images are in some way re-articulated or, or re-appropriated through this mm. kind of framework. It's a good question. It may, may very well be. I haven't really looked at any Western animations turned into Japanese. Mm. Is that now led to this discourse of violent and sexually charged girls that changes uh, that mm. perception would be another way of getting at I think what Josh is well, Josh is asking I, actually, I don't know but yeah. I would imagine it certainly deepens the emotional resonance of watching it having this other wider older context there but I actually don't know I think Buffy is a girls watched by girls in Japan mm -hmm. which makes it a little different because most of this stuff is watched by men other questions? We're a timid group tonight. <laughs> end, of, end of term brain drain. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to get my workout tonight. Good. Uh, I'm just wondering whether um, 
I mean, you've spoken mostly about adolescent images of teenagers and things like that. I'm wondering how this movement affected representations in mainstream women, in media of other women, like young adults, middle-aged women, mothers, you know, just if this trickled up or down or whatever to any other sort of female representation in the media. Um, there, there are sort of obvious stereotypes of women who aren't shoujo, and then usually quite negative. Um, Obatarian, the horrible, um, over-bossy, over-interfering, over-vocal woman in her 40s to 60s who keeps telling you what she thinks and pushing in front of you, especially if you're a guy. So there is the, the sort of um, annoying, knows her rights, knows her own strengths sort of female stereotype, which I guess is a kind of counterpoint to the cute sort of ditzy girl getting her gun out for you sort of image. But... Um, and I think the girls' images sort of outweigh those those women, other images of women. It's a little difficult to quantify in that way. There's so much, so many different shows, and there's all the morning soap dramas of female endurance in the household. And it's hard for me to um, quickly sort of relate these these texts to those texts. But though there are a lot of other images of women in other cultures. Or cultural formations. Sorry. You had mentioned in the talk Battle Royale, which may be one of the more violent films that's better known in the in, in the West. And I'm, I, it's which is a curious example of what you're describing because there's school boys as well as school girls mm -hmm. involved in mm -hmm. that activity. And I noticed before that there's relatively little transgender killing in that film. That there are only mm -hmm. a couple of moments. By and large, it's women, girls killing girls and boys killing boys. Mm. Which so that was one one part of I want to ask you about. And the other is just, is there a parallel example or parallel discourse about the Japanese schoolboy that Battle Royale is picking up on, or is it trying to just sort of spread the wealth, as it were, in terms <laughs> of violence? I mean, how do how do how do you read the gen the masculine side of that film in relation to what you're talking about? Um. It just doesn't fit the particular model that I'm posing that closely. I mean, I think, although having said that, it is the women killers and, and the, the, the violence of the girls in that, that film that attracts most interest. The, bo the boys, for some reason, don't seem to be picked up on by the fans of that, of that film in, in, in Japan or outside of Japan. They're generally much more interested in the girls and the girl killing. Um, there is overlap. There's, there's a couple of films where where it eventually involves boys, but they're usually the boyfriends or the little brothers or the sidekicks of the girls. They sort of creep in at the corners there. Mm. Uh, how does queerness play in this kind of context? Queerness? Um, yeah, queerness. Are there representations of queer girls? Uh, is that, is, you know, is girl-on-girl -girl play part of this as well? That's such a difficult question. <laughs> I mean, I don't entirely... I'm pretty ignorant about how queerness is structured within the US, to be really honest. And, and there is a very specific way of... of, of there's a specific history and organisation of girl-girl or S-lesbianism in Japan, uh, which is really quite different from the organisation or the understanding of lesbianism or girl-girl romance in a, in a US... Or, or a UK or a European context, and it's much more accepted and normalised. 
and, it, and it's quite widespread, and it's captured here and there in mm. film. Very rarely anything sexually explicit, but there are a few pre-war novels that are quite sexually explicit too. Mm. So, that, so the, the place of lesbianism and, and the divide between um, sexual desire or sexual identity and culture is, is cut up in a very different way. Um, there's, no, there's no real distinction between the sexual act and the culture, for example. It's not fetishised, this divide. In, in that way. Um, queerness does enter in, in another way, which is quite interesting, which is the, the queerness of the male producers projecting their subjectivity on the female bodies. Um, there is a whole other attached subject related to this, which I, I didn't go into, but I actually also have an awful lot of visuals, material for, and I've been doing a lot of work on, which relates to transvestism amongst male intellectuals in Japan. And a lot of these men were actually dressing up as lolitas the same people who are doing the research on them. So, so you can go deeper and deeper into this whole question of the, the, nature, of the, uh, the nature of the division of labour of gender in this particular cultural production and what, what happens to male, male subjectivity and why is it taking this form. Um, I may even have some images here of some of the people I've quoted dressed up in drag, but... It'd be quite hard to pull them up off the <laughs> USB device. Um, so queerness is, is, is a kind of issue, but I don't think conceptualise with the word queer, maybe. Yeah. Mm, transvestism, maybe. Yeah, right. Ueno Chizuko describes it as a transvestite patriarchy, the feminist who was also involved. That's a, basically her shorthand for modern Japan. Um, a male-dominated society posing as a female society or a feministic society.